morning. If you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. That feels strange to say after being in Acts for a year. We're in John today. And today is Palm Sunday. And so what I thought would be good for us to do is to look at John's description of Palm Sunday. So if you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 12. You may have noticed the room is different. There's been a change this Sunday. And Palm Sunday actually represents a change in the life and ministry of Jesus. It is the point in his ministry in which he actually embraces the idea of being king. We're going to see that today in John chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 12 to 26. If Siri will let me look at my sermon notes. Okay, John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. Now, before we read this, I want to give you the structure of of what this looks like. I think you can divide this passage into two sections. The first section, verses 12 to 19, is the idea that Jesus is the king of the Jews. And in verses 20 to 26, John goes even further to say that Jesus is the king of the world. He's the king of the nations. And so that's how we're going to frame this today as we look at it from John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. Let's read this together. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. 
Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. I want to read one more passage of Scripture because I think it's important. When you read the Gospel of John, you need to know why John wrote the Gospel of John. So turn a few chapters ahead to John uh, John chapter 20. And I want us to keep this in mind as we study this passage today. Why did John write John chapter 12? He explains why in John chapter 20, verse 30. John 20, verse 30. This is the key to understanding the gospel of John. John chapter 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written. The gospel of John is written. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, And that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so John gives us a key to understanding John 12. He is very intentional with the language that he uses and the things that he describes for two reasons. That you would read it and believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And secondly, that by believing that he's the Son of God, you would have life in his name. So there is life being offered today from John chapter 12 as we look at Jesus being the king. Let's pray together as we prepare to hear the word today. Father, would you speak today through your word and lift up our eyes to Jesus to see that he truly is the king. He's the king of the Jews. He's the king of the nations. He's the king of all other kings. Lord of all other lords. So Father, use your word today. To make us see the glory of Christ. That we would believe in him again today. That we may have life in his name. Life abundant. Father, speak through your word today. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, elevate Jesus. And make Jesus look great in our midst. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we get to Palm Sunday. This is a... A Sunday celebrated by the church, recognizing the week before Jesus was crucified, when he rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, and the people were waving palm branches. Now the question is, why were all of those people gathered to begin with? And there's two answers to that question. The first answer is that it was Passover, right? Passover is the Old Testament Uh, holiday that Jonathan explained very well of celebrating Israel's deliverance from Egypt where they had to sacrifice the lamb which we celebrated at the Lord's table. God's wrath passed over them. And so everybody came to Jerusalem. Every year all the Jews would come to celebrate this great holiday. But there's a second reason why all of these people were gathered especially to see Jesus. And the reason we're told is in verse 18. The reason why the crowd went to meet him 
was that they had heard he had done this sign. Now the question is, what sign exactly are they talking about? Well, verse 17 tells us what that sign was. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. So the people who saw Jesus raise Lazarus are now bearing witness in Jerusalem that, hey, there is a guy who has power not only to heal the blind, not only to make lame people walk, but he has the power to raise the dead. Now, you can imagine how this creates anticipation among the Jewish people. Imagine that there's a guy that just a few days later had told a man who had been dead four days, Lazarus, come forth, and he walks out of this tomb, okay? No doubt he was dead. And now everybody hears about this. The Jews have been under the oppression of the Roman Empire, and they've been waiting for a king. They've been waiting for someone, some military ruler, some political force to come in, overthrow Nero, overthrow the emperor, overthrow the Roman Empire. And what better person to do that, what better king to have than a man who can raise people from the dead. So if we go to war with Rome, it doesn't matter if we die because our king can raise us back from the dead and we're just going to keep on fighting until the Romans leave. That's their idea. We want a king. That's a pretty cool king, right? This is, I always return to Lord of the Rings. This is that, that, that fight with those ghosts. You can't kill them. You can't stop them because they got a king who's already died and risen from the dead. What, and these are still alive. This is the kind of king we want. We want a king who can raise us from the dead. And so now you can imagine the Jewish anticipation at Passover. They're gathered for this feast, and now they hear that Jesus is coming into town. And this is the same Jesus that raised Lazarus from the dead. And so now we get to verse 12, and this large crowd is gathered for Passover. And so let's read what happens here. Verse 12, the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So what did they do? They took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And so what does Jesus do? He finds a donkey, a young donkey, and rides into town, into Jerusalem. And this is the first time we see Jesus embracing his identity as the king of Israel. See, up until this time, he has been pushing it away, but now he's going to embrace it. And so Jesus purposefully enters Jerusalem during Passover, and he's greeted by a crowd, and they're crying out, Hosanna. Now, in English, we say, Hosanna. Anybody want to know what the Greek word for Hosanna is? Hosanna, right? They just took the Greek word and put it into English, and now we have Hosanna. And actually, the Greek word Hosanna comes from a Hebrew word. You want to know what the Hebrew word is for Hosanna? It's pretty much Hosanna. It's the Hebrew word Yasha, which means save. So the word Hosanna comes from Hebrew. They brought it over to Greek, and we just kind of took the Greek word and brought it over to English. And it literally means save us now. 
So when these people are saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, what they're telling Jesus, the king, you're our king, save us now. And the question that we have to answer is this. Save them from what? There's a lot of people who come to Jesus, even today, and say, save us, Jesus. But if you were to ask them, what, do you, what exactly do you want Jesus to save you from? For the Jews, they wanted Jesus to save them from Rome. Save us from the Roman Empire. Save, save us from the tyranny of the emperor. Has it changed any today? People come to Jesus for all kinds of reasons, right? Jesus, save me from poverty. If I follow Jesus, I'll get money. Jesus, save me from sickness. Jesus, save me from politics. Save from what? Jesus, save me from my family. Save me from bad experiences. Save me from difficult times. Save me from stress. Save me. When you come to church and you tell Jesus, save me, what exactly do you want him to save you from? Why do you come to Jesus? The truth is that these people came to Jesus for all the wrong reasons. And it happens today. People come to Jesus to be saved from all kinds of things. When in reality, the one thing we need Jesus to save us from is our sin and the penalty of our sin and the wrath of God for our sin. But that is not what these Jewish people are asking for. They want a king. And they want a king to come into Rome, kick butt, take names, kick Nero off his throne. And this is our God, because he can raise people from the dead. And so they're saying, save us now. And what do they do? They're actually quoting scripture here when they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. They're quoting Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. These people knew their Bibles. They knew that there was this anticipation that the Messiah would come, that he would rule over his people. Except they had the wrong understanding of the king. Now, this is a nightmare for the Pharisees. Right? The Pharisees, the last thing in the world that the Pharisees want is for Jesus to embrace this idea of being a king. Because what's going to happen if Jesus says, I am the king. And Nero is not. That's going to draw attention to Jerusalem. And Nero is going to say, uh-uh. Why, right, Caesar's going to say, no way, this is not going to happen. He's going to shut this down. And the Pharisees are going to lose their position of authority. They're going to lose their ability to teach. They're going to lose their position if Rome steps in and says, you can no longer practice your religion. So they don't want any Jewish person rising up and saying, I'm the king. And so now there's this tension. Is Jesus going to retreat or is he, is he going to allow himself to be made king? And we see here that Jesus does not walk away. 
In fact, he heightens the situation and he says, while I'm at it, I'm going to fulfill a prophecy in the meantime. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, which is quoted here. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And so Jesus comes under completely different pretenses. A normal king would come riding in a chariot, riding on a horse with majesty and and pomp, right? And everybody would come and look at this great king, but he doesn't come on a horse. He comes on a donkey. This king is a different kind of king. He's not the king who's going to come with authority and force. He's going to come in humility and service, And so no, Jesus does not walk away from acclamation, but he heightens it and he chooses to fulfill this prophecy made in Zechariah that I guarantee you the Jewish people were aware of. And here's what he's saying with this action. As he rides into town on this donkey, he is saying, yes, I am the king of Israel. I am the Messiah. And I'm going to do this at the most explosively dangerous moment during Passover. Now, the reason we know that the Jews had different expectations of Jesus is that the very same people who were crying out, Hosanna, save us, Lord, are the same people, the same crowd a week later who were saying, crucify him. Because this king does not meet my expectations. And so now what I want you to notice is how John is strategically weaving the story. In verses 17 to 19, he weaves the story together to make plain that the kingship of Jesus is not just local. It's more than a local Jewish tribal kingship. But in fact, Jesus is the king of the world. And the disciples do not understand this immediately. Look at verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, that is, after his crucifixion, after his resurrection, after he had ascended, the disciples get together and realize, then remember that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So in the moment, the disciples aren't thinking, wow, Jesus is riding a donkey. He's fulfilling Zechariah 9. And and man, these people are crying out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're quoting Psalm 118. This This is all fulfillment. This is cool. They didn't notice that until afterwards. And they come back and they start to think and they say, you remember? Jesus was intentionally riding on that donkey. Jesus was intentionally coming with these palm branches. These palm branches were symbols of uh, messianic expectations of the Jewish people. They, They had expectations that Jesus was coming and he was going to rule and reign, but not in the way that they thought. And so now this crowd is gathered because they've heard that Lazarus has been raised from the dead. This crowd gathers and the Pharisees unintentionally prophesy something. And notice what they say in verse 19. They say, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So now there's this transition from not just the Jewish people are coming after him, but the world has gone after him. Jesus is not just the king of the Jews. Now, the world. Now, they didn't mean it that way. They didn't mean it the way that they said it. They were kind of using hyperbole. Look, the whole world's gone after him. Not realizing that they were actually prophesying that the world had gone after him. I want you to, I'm going to give you another example of this of when they uh, 
when they prophesied and didn't mean to. John chapter 11. The Pharisees get together and they want to kill Jesus. I want you to see this. John chapter 11. Verse 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. He just raised Lazarus from the dead. And they're like, what are we going to do with him? Verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. That's what they're worried about. We're going to lose our position. Verse 49. Now listen to Caiaphas. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He said this, or he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Caiaphas said one thing, and John understood it to mean something else. Here's what Caiaphas said. The Pharisees are gathered together. They want to kill Jesus. And they're, they're looking and they're saying, the whole world's gone after him. And so here's what Caiaphas says. He, got, he says, you guys don't know anything at all. It's better for us to kill Jesus than to let the whole nation perish under the Roman Empire. It's better for us to kill this guy now and let him die than to let the whole nation go under. That's what he meant. And John says he was preaching and didn't even know it. And it's true, Jesus would die for the nation of Israel. But he wouldn't just die for the nation of Israel. He would die for all nations to gather his children from all people groups, all tribes, all tongues, all places. Yes, Jesus did die for the nation and he did die for all nations, but not to save them from the Roman Empire, but to save them from the wrath of God, to save them from the judgment on their sin. So that's why Jesus came. And so the, John takes what the Pharisees intend for evil and he uses it to preach the gospel and show that Jesus intended it for good. So we go back to John chapter 12. And here's the Pharisees and they're watching the parade. Nobody's coming to their church anymore. Nobody's coming to synagogue because the, the fulfillment of the temple is walking or riding by on a donkey. And they're looking around and nobody's in synagogue because they're all watching these people worship Jesus. And now they're jealous, angry. And they just say, look, man, the whole world's gone after him. Now that sounds a little extreme, right? Really? The whole world? Has the whole world really gone after? That's a really odd thing to say at a Jewish festival. Right? But now we get to the transition to verse 20, right? And so we see that Jesus is not just king of Israel. He is the king, the true king of the world. Let's look at verse 20. And this brings us to the second part of the text. And who should show up now but some Greeks out of the blue, right? Verse 20, now among those who went up to worship at the feast 
were some Greeks. Now we have people represented by other nations. So these came to Philip. Philip was Greek. That's why they came to Philip. They felt like they could communicate with him. And, and they said, hey, Philip, we want to see Jesus. So Philip goes to Andrew. And Andrew and Philip go to Jesus. And they tell Jesus that, hey, there's these Greeks who want to see you. And here's where I've i got to confess, I have always read this text. I've inserted a, a verse in here that is not here. I always assumed that Jesus said, yeah, bring them on. Let, let me see them. Let me talk to them. But we're, not, we're never told that, that the Greeks ever got to see Jesus. Instead, Jesus says something. He says something about himself that also becomes true for us. So here's what Jesus says. Really strange. Hey Jesus, there's some Greeks who want to see you. And here's Jesus' response. Verse 24. Truly I say to you. Or verse 23. Jesus answered them. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I say to you. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies. It remains alone. But if it dies... It bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. That seems weird. I would read that as, yeah, Jesus wants to see the Greeks, but he doesn't do that. He starts speaking truth about himself. So first of all, let's back up a little bit. Why are the Greeks coming to Jesus? Greeks are asking to see Jesus at a Passover celebration for the Jews. Why here? Why now? And I think it's because God wants to show, and John is underlining that Jesus really is the king, not just of Israel, but of the world, the whole world, represented here by the Gentiles, by these foreigners. And so in verse 19, when the Pharisees say the whole world has gone after him, now even the Greeks are going after him. And so God's word to us so far in this text is that Jesus really is the Messiah. He really did come into the world to be king of Israel. That's why he got on that donkey and fulfilled Zechariah 9. But now we see that Jesus is more than a Jewish Messiah. He's more than just the king of Israel. He's the king of the whole world. He's the king over all nations. All neighborhoods. Including Rome. And Cartersville. Kingston. And Russia. And China. And Brazil. He's the king over all nations. He's the king over Afghanistan and Pakistan and Jordan. He's the king over all nations. And people are going to go after him from all peoples and all nations and all neighborhoods. And all of this sounds very triumphant and very wonderful, but then the words of Jesus in response to the Greeks desire to see him. We got to deal with this. The Greeks want to see Jesus. Do they get to see him? Physically, we don't know. John doesn't say. But I think he doesn't say for our sake. Because Jesus does show himself. He shows himself 
in the same way that he shows himself to us. He speaks truth about himself. And that truth becomes a truth about us. And so this is how Jesus shows himself in power. He gives truth about himself that becomes truth about us. Let me, let me explain this here. Jesus is not just the local king of the Jews. He's the king of the whole world, represented by the Gentiles, and now he speaks this truth that applies to us. And so, the desire of the Greeks is right. Wanting to see Jesus is right. That's a good desire, to desire to see Jesus. And so here's, here's Jesus' response in verse 23. He says, oh, so there's Greeks who want to see me? Well, here's the truth about me that matters for the Greeks and for the people in Jerusalem and at Bethlehem. If you want to see me and know me, here's how you see me. Verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am on my way to glory. And I really will be something to see. The Greeks are right to want to see me. I will pray for this, that they will see my glory in John chapter 17, verse 20. That they would see my glory. I will be the most glorious person in the universe when my Father raises me from the dead and gives me a name that is above every name in heaven and earth and under the earth and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess including Jews and Greeks and Americans that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It is right to want to see me. It is right to want to be identified with me. The hour has come for me to be glorified. And so, however, Jesus speaks in a way that they're not expecting. Verse 24 is not the way you expect to be glorified. Verse 24 says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it will bear no fruit. What is Jesus saying about his glory in verse 23 and a seed that has to die in verse 24? How are those two things related? How is the death of Jesus related to us seeing his glory? Jesus is saying, my pathway to glory is through death. Do you want to see that? Is that the kind of king you want? You want a king... Hanging naked on a cross on top of the town garbage heap? Is that the king you want? Because that's the king that I am. I will bear much fruit from my death, including Greeks. But I will not and I cannot bear that fruit any other way but through dying. I'm not a gardener, I do not have a green thumb. I have a black thumb of death. And even in elementary school, I put the seed into my little styrofoam cup with the dirt in it. Everybody else has started to sprout. Mine went backwards. I don't understand it. I did everything everybody else did. I, I never liked that project because it just showed the fact that I stink at gardening, right? But you have to put a seed into the dirt to allow that seed to die before it can sprout and grow. Or so I'm told. 
What Jesus is saying here is that in order for him to bear spiritual fruit, in order for him to truly show his glory, he must first die. As a seed must die to bear fruit, so also Jesus must die on a cross to bear spiritual fruit for God. And so Jesus says, if I leave the road I'm on now, and I try to be seen by people who want a glimpse of a king, I will remain alone. Like a seed in a bag not thrown into the ground. And you will not be saved, neither the Jews nor the Greeks. If I stay on this road and become your king, none of you will be saved. But if I go on and die on my way to glory, then I will bear much fruit. And you will be saved, and the Greeks will be saved, and people at Three Rivers will be saved, and all who believe in me will be saved. Do they want to see me? The Greeks want to see me? This is what I want them to see me as. I want them to see me die. I want them to see me bearing fruit. And now here's the rub. This is where Palm Sunday gets a little convicting. Because as Jesus is he's riding on a road, on a donkey, on the very same road that he's going to come back out of the city carrying a cross. And as he carries that cross out of the city, he looks at you and me and he says, come and follow me and take up your own cross. And so Jesus is not just saying this, that I must die to bear fruit, but now he's, not, he's calling it our imitation. He's saying, in order for you to bear fruit, you also must die. And it's right there in the text. Look at it, verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let me read that another way. Jesus is saying, he who loves his life loses it if you hate your life in this world and you try to keep, keep it, you'll gain eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. Follow him where? To Gethsemane and to Calvary and to the grave. And where I am, there my servants will also be. Where will we be if we follow him? We'll be in the presence of his Father in glory. This is not just a truth about Jesus. When Jesus says that unless a seed goes into the ground and dies, it won't bear fruit, that's not just about Jesus. That's about every one of you. It's about me. And so here's the question. Will we hate our lives in this world? Or do we love our lives here? If you love your life now, you're going to lose it. Will we let the truth of the Son of Man become true for us? Will we follow him to the cross? Will we identify ourselves with the one that we are so eager to see? You want to see Jesus? Do you want to see Jesus' glory this morning? Do you want to see him as he truly is? Then it requires you to follow him. And so here's, here's where, how we're going to finish today in application. Jesus is saying, if you want to see me, be prepared to become like me. And prepare to follow me on the road that I'm going. And here's the deal. Jesus gives four very difficult teachings. And here, I'm not going to 
sugarcoat this. The truth is that these teachings are hard. Like hopefully you feel uncomfortable when Jesus says follow me and die. You're meant to feel uncomfortable. We call that the cost of discipleship, right? But not only are these teachings hard, but there's also great glory in these teachings. They're, they're hard, but they're glorious. And I'm going to show you both, all right? Because if you only see how hard it is, if you only think Jesus' teachings are hard, then you're going to miss the freedom and the power and the grace that he offers you to live in that reality. But if you only see the glory in it, if you only see the good and not the difficulty, then you're going to minimize the sacrifice. So, in these final three verses, Jesus gives four hard teachings that result in four glorious truths. Okay, And so let's look at these. these. This is how we apply this today. Hard teaching number one is in verse 24. The grain of wheat must die. Following Jesus demands dying to yourself. Not only denying yourself, but dying to yourself. This is represented in baptism, right? When we baptize Cynthia in a few weeks, that will be Cynthia's funeral service. Because the old Cynthia is gone. Right? Baptism is a funeral service for the old self. It is saying that I am, I no longer live. I'm crucified. With Christ. And it's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. And yet I live. Right? There's, there's another example of like hard truth. A glorious teaching. I'm crucified with Christ. Yet I live. And he lives in me. Right? So there's the picture. So the hard truth here is that the grain of wheat must die. To follow Jesus and identify with him means that you must die to yourself. And here's the glorious truth. Jesus says in verse 24. If the seed dies... It will bear much fruit. There's the glorious truth. If you die to yourself, if, you, if you're willing to sacrifice your own desires for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of Christ, you will bear much fruit for God. You'll be fruitful. That means that our death, our dying to ourself, is not in vain and it is not insignificant. Have you died to yourself? Or are there still parts of the old self that's still clinging on to life? That's hard teaching number one. The grain of wheat must die. And that grain of wheat is you and me. Hard teaching number two is in verse 25. Jesus says, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Hard teaching number two. Jesus calls us to hate our lives in this world. Now that does not mean suicidal. I hate life. That doesn't mean negativity. It doesn't mean low self-esteem. It doesn't mean pessimism. What he means is we hate this life in the sense that all the things, all the pleasures, everything that this world has to offer, we do not embrace it. Because we know that there's something better for us. And so Jesus is calling us to hate our lives in this world. But here's the glorious truth. If we lay down our lives here, we get to keep our lives eternally. Look at verse 25. 
Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If you love this life now and you're living only for this world and this is the only thing you've got going and all of your money and all of your time and all of your energy and all of your investments is only in this world, it's only in what goes on at the ball game, it's only wrapped up in your work, it's only wrapped up in pleasure here, it's only wrapped up in living to the next vacation. If that's all you live for, you're going to lose it all. It's like playing Monopoly. You own all the property, all the businesses, you take everybody else's stuff, you got all the hotels, all the railroads, you got the utilities, you even own Boardwalk and Park Place, but when the game's over, everything you own goes back in the box, including your body body will be put in a box buried six feet under the ground. It all goes back in the box. And so if all you're living for is this world, you're going to lose it all. You get to keep none of it. But if you lose your life in this world and you don't hold on to these things and you lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust can destroy and thieves can't break in and steal, you lose nothing and you gain everything. You get to keep your life. You get to keep it all. You don't lose anything. What we lay down for Christ, He will put it back in our hands with glory. You know what that means? That means you can never out-sacrifice Jesus' resurrection generosity. Mm. Jesus has a lot more to offer to you than you have to offer to Him. And so don't think that this life is a sacrifice of giving up this world. You're giving up a mirage for the reality of the glory of Jesus' kingdom and everything He has to offer you. So, Three Rivers, don't fall into the trap of only living for this world. Don't let money be your God. Don't let vacation be your God. Don't let, don't let work be your God. Don't, don't let sports be your God. It's a mirage. All of those things can be nice and wonderful and great blessings in this life, but we don't live for those things. That's not our king. Jesus is king. And his kingdom has much more better things to offer to us. And so your sacrifice here will, will always be paid out more in the kingdom of God. Hard teaching number three. It's at the beginning of verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Hard teaching number three. Jesus calls us to follow him on his Calvary road, which leads to death. When Jesus says, follow me, he's talking about following me. To the cross, follow me to death, follow me, take up your cross and follow me. Don't lose the language of that in our modern society where we wear crosses on necklaces and t-shirts. Take up your electric chair and follow me. The electric chair hasn't really made it to the necklaces yet, right? That'd be a, that'd be a great thing to sell like in a Christian bookstore. 
just for like a gospel witnessing opportunity, I'm, I'm getting off track here, but just thought, opportunity here. If we ever have a church bookstore, in it, can we please just not sell crosses? Let's sell electric chairs on t-shirts and take up your electric chair and follow Jesus. It'd at least get people to think, right? Taking up your cross in first century Judaism was not an exciting proposition. So the hard teaching is Jesus is calling us to follow him. And it might even mean following him to the death. But here's the glorious truth. Hard teaching is we follow him even to death. The glorious teaching. Verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me even to death. And where I am, there will my servant be also. Here's the glorious truth. If we follow Jesus to Calvary, we will be with him in glory. Death is not the end. Hard teaching number four. It's at the end of verse 26. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Hard teaching number four that Jesus is calling us to. Jesus calls us to serve him no matter the demand or how lowly the status. In the very next chapter, in John chapter 13, Jesus is going to wash his disciples' feet. He's going to say, if I, your master, have done this to you, how much more should you serve one another? That means we make sacrifices for one another. Jesus calls us to serve him and by connection serving one another. How do we serve? We serve obvious ways of serving in the church, serving meeting people's needs. You make sacrifices for the people you love. You make sacrifices for people, especially those you're in community with, right? In a radical life group, you make, you make sacrifices. You serve those people. If you need something, I need to change something, hey, I'm there. I'm, I'm serving you. Jesus calls me to serve him, and I serve him by serving you. We make sacrifices for one another. If somebody needs something, we, we do it, right? This church has been wonderful for us just in the last month of bringing food for us. And it's been serving. You've, you've done it with grace and you've done it with, with generosity. And you've made our lives so much better by doing that. You're a blessing. And we want to keep doing that for one another. We serve one another. No matter how lowly the status or how lowly the job. And here's the, here's the glorious truth. You may think, well... What if I don't get noticed? What if I set up chairs or set up pipe and drape? What if I'm doing all this and nobody says anything and and I don't feel like I'm appreciated? First of all, I'm sorry. Um, I'm I'm fallen. I have uh, public school education and my brain is the size is three pounds, right? So I'm sorry. I'm fallen. I'm messed up. And I may not honor you the way that you probably deserve to be honored for the way you serve in this church, but here's the glorious truth. If you serve in the kingdom, the Father will always honor you. Jesus says in verse 26, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. You may not get the glory you deserve here, but you'll get the the glory you deserve from the Father. He will honor you. There's no task that we can skip out on, no task too small for us in the kingdom. 
And it just kind of sets you free, right? I don't need the praise of man anymore. I can do my job, do my thing, knowing that there is not one reward that the Father will miss out on on Judgment Day for anything that I've done in the kingdom. So don't overlook the small tasks. Don't be too big to do the small things. Church, let's not miss the glory and the overflowing joy of this hard life of being a Christian. Let's Let's not make any bones about it. This is hard teaching. But there's glory in it, and there's freedom in it, and there's grace in it. And Jesus tells you, come to me if you're weak and heavy laden. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. So let's recap. If we die, we will bear much fruit. If we hate our lives in this world, we will keep our lives for eternal life. If we follow Jesus on the Calvary Road, we will join Jesus where he is in glory. And if we become his servants, the Father will honor us. This is what Palm Sunday is about, following him on that road. When you get to John, or you get to Revelation chapter 7, we see the same thing, the picture of the nations as they're gathered together. I'm going to read that in just a moment. But I was thinking, as I was looking at, I was looking at the Gospel of John, I couldn't help it. I started asking myself, you know, John says that he wrote all these things to showcase Jesus. And I just couldn't, I started going through every chapter saying, okay, what is this chapter? If this, if this is true, John, I'm talking to John here. John, if this is true, that means every chapter should say something about the glory of Jesus. I started looking. And you know what? John's right. He wrote everything with the idea of making Jesus look good so that we would believe in him and have life. And so let me just remind you on this Palm Sunday about the king that we worship. The king who's not just king of the Jews, but he's king of the nations. He's king of America. He's king of three rivers. He's Lord of lords. In John chapter 1, Jesus is creator. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is the creator. And then John chapter 1 later, John the Baptist comes by and says, this is the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. John is off to a good start. Then he gets to John chapter 2, and we get to the wedding at Cana. Jesus is the perfect bridegroom who not only provides wine at a wedding, but he supplies all of our needs because we are his Bride. In John chapter 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus that you must be born again. I am the one who gives eternal life. I am like that snake in numbers as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness. So the Son of Man must also be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. In John chapter 4, he meets a Samaritan woman and he tells this woman for the first time who has five old boyfriends living with a sixth man who is not her husband looking for sexual gratification she is not finding it in her relationships and she drinks from a water a well that has water from which she will never first Jesus is living water who satisfies the soul get to John chapter 5 we see that he is God in the flesh making himself equal with the father he is the one who is able even to heal a lame man from the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 6 he is the bread of life He not only feeds the hungry, but he satisfies the hungry soul. He is the bread of life, and whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood, he will never die, but he will have life eternal. John chapter 7, he's just playing out the Messiah. He says, he who comes to me out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. John 7, verses 37 to 39, good stuff. Whoever has the spirit of Christ in him out of his belly, 
belly, out of his soul will flow rivers of living water. In John chapter 8, Jesus is the light of the world. And he says in John chapter 8, verse 32, he is the truth who will set you free this morning. John chapter 9, he's the one who heals the eyes of a blind man, opens our eyes, our blind eyes to see his glory. In John chapter 10, he's the gate. If you want to get to the Father, you go through the door, and Jesus is that door, and when you get through that door, you find that you're part of the sheepfold. You've heard his voice because he is the good shepherd, and his sheep hear his voice. In John chapter 11, He's the resurrection and the life because he speaks to Lazarus. Good thing he said, Lazarus, come forth. Because if he just said, come forth, every dead person in Jerusalem would have gotten up. Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus doesn't ask for permission, doesn't use his will. He just obeys. And his dead body comes to life. And Jesus tells Mary and Martha, I am the resurrection and the life who has conquered death for all. All of us. In John chapter 12, Hosanna, he is the king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. John chapter 13, he is the master who serves his people and suffers for their sins. In John chapter 14, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. In John chapter 15, he's the vine. And we are the branches. And we bear fruit when we abide in him. And our life is in him. In John chapter 16, he says take heart I have overcome the world in John 17 he's the great high priest who intercedes for us day and night before the throne of God there is one mediator between God and man Christ Jesus the Lord and we have access to the Father through Christ in John chapter 18 he is the suffering servant who takes the place of sinners who is falsely accused who is wrongly tried and takes our place in the courtroom in John chapter 19 he is the crucified Savior who bears the wrath of God for us on the cross. And in John chapter 20, we're going to celebrate this next week. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Death loses its sting. Hell loses its victory. And in John chapter 21, he's the gracious Lord who takes people who have denied him and forgives their sins and says, go feed my sheep. Follow me. And John writes these things so that you this morning would see the glory of Christ, that you would believe on him this morning and have life in his name. And so we conclude, what is John's story? Where is John going? John has the end in mind, and he gets to Revelation 7, and John writes this story of what he sees in heaven, in the future, in, John, in Revelation 7, 9 through 12. He says, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude... That no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes of purity, righteousness, sins forgiven, with palm branches in their hands. And crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Three rivers, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He is our King. And to that we say, Amen. And the response is to sing and to worship. 
And so let's respond to the Lord this morning. As we've heard the word, let's respond in worship of the King. Let's pray. Father, you're great and glorious. And you have sent your son Jesus to be our great king. A king who came to the earth the first time on a donkey, but who will come the second time on a white horse to rule and reign over all the, all the nations. And out of his mouth will come a sword that will destroy everyone who opposes him. And all blessing and honor and glory and power and might is given to that king, to Jesus. Today we worship Jesus. Father, today we bow the knee to Jesus. Give us the grace to follow Christ. Even on the Calvary road to take up our crosses today and follow him. Father, exalt Jesus today in our worship. May we follow Christ more closely, more deeply than ever before. And may we believe in him and have a life in his name today as we worship. In spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen.